0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, as we all know, people can be real jerks sometimes. And the people we refer to culturally as trolls have been real jerks to writer Lindy West. I won't detail exactly what they've said. West tells some of that tale here, but suffice to say, it's been awful. Among other things, people were shaming her for being fat, and for her opposition to rape jokes and stand-up comedy. Popular wisdom says you don't feed the trolls, but West had had enough when one troll in particular went to the awful extent of creating a Twitter account with which he pretended to be her dead father in order to berate her. West wrote about the incident in the online journal Jezebel. Her antagonist read that column, somehow realized the awful thing he had done, and wrote to apologize. The story of their subsequent correspondence was featured in an episode of This American Life, and West kept writing. Lindy West got her start as a writer at Seattle's The Stranger newspaper. She is a columnist at The Guardian now, a freelance writer, and the co-founder of Shout Your Abortion, a social media campaign on Twitter where women share their abortion experiences without sadness, shame, or regret. Lindy West's new memoir is Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman. She spoke to a Town Hall Seattle audience on May 25th. Her appearance was sponsored by Town Hall and University Bookstore as part of the Arts and Culture series. Thank you to anna Sophia Knauf for our recording. The best of Seattle showed up for this talk to support a hometown favorite, writer they admire, and a brave vanquisher of trolls. You can practically hear the love in the room. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Town Hall's Katie Sewell introduces Lindy West.
1: And now, without further ado, let me introduce our guest for the evening, Seattle-based Lindy West. She's a writer, editor, and performer whose work focuses on pop culture, social justice, humor, and body image. Currently a culture writer for GQ and a weekly columnist for The Guardian, Lindy is also the founder and editor of an advice blog for teens called I Believe You, It's Not Your Fault. In 2015, she wrote and recorded a story for This American Life about confronting an Internet troll who impersonated her dead father two years earlier. As a result, Lindy was listed as one of the Internet's most fascinating of 2015 by Cosmopolitan.com. Right? (laughs) She also helped launch the viral hashtag ShoutYourAbortion in defense of women. Wow. <laughs> and of course, we know why we're here tonight. She joins us to discuss her story and her new book, Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman. Please join me in welcoming Lenny West.
2: Sorry if that was gross that I came out with my phone, but this is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. There's so many of you. I'm going to, in fact, now also take a picture of you, because I have to remember that this happened. (laughs) Like, I need proof. Okay. So, like, there's... Okay. (laughs) Okay. enough of that. That's goofy. Okay. So, wow. Um, you know, when I was leaving my house to come here, I said to my husband, uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous. You know, my other readings, because I'm sort of ha- halfway through this tour, and my other readings have been like, you know, 30, 40, 50 people, and, and I said, uh, you know, this is going to be like 800 people, and he was like, 700. It's fine. <laughs> And then we got here, and they were like, oh, no, it's (laughs) It's 1,200. They're like, yeah. Which is... I'm pretty sure that's the most number of people. That's the highest number of of people that has ever existed. So um, anyway, I, I just... I don't really know how to express my gratitude to all of you for being here, but it's uh, unbelievably moving, and um, I'm going to ramble for a minute, and then I'm going to read for a little bit, and then we're going to talk as friends, and then we're going to sign books. Does that sound like a good plan? All right, so um, I started this book um, about a year ago, and It was a really long, difficult, scary, solitary process because I didn't know if I knew how to write a book. I mean, I knew that I didn't know how (laughs) to write a book Um, because, you know, the longest thing I'd written before that was maybe 5,000 words, maybe, probably more like 2,000. And a book, FYI, is 80,000, which is a lot of words. And um, they just sort of... uh, turn you loose, and they say, okay, send us a book later. <laughs> which is scary. And so, um, so I I ended up just spending a lot of time alone in my house and in other people's houses that they kindly let me use. I went to a cabin in Maine, um, and I was very alone for about a month, um, with only the family of bats living in the wall to keep me company, which, um, when you 're already afraid of ghosts it's not fun they're not good friends, actually good companions at all, because um you're well because they're in the wall and then they make they make the oh just imagine the worst noise and then double it and that 's the noise that a bat in the wall makes behind your head when you 're sleeping in a in a two hundred year old farmhouse in Maine in the middle of nowhere so um but it was uh an amazing experience in its, in its own way, and um, it was beautiful and, and I got a, and I wrote a lot of good book there, so that was good um, but yeah, so this is a memoir, which means it 's a bunch of stuff from my life and when you 're just writing a bunch of stuff from your life alone in a bat haunted cabin in Maine, you kind of forget that someday twelve hundred people are going to read it. <laughs> 1,200 people, um, hopefully minimum, and hopefully more than that. Um, And now I'm sort of reckoning with that, that, you know, I made this thing, and it's very, very vulnerable and very personal in a way that I don't usually write. And uh, now I send it out into the world, and a bunch of strangers read it, and then form an opinion on it, (laughs) which is weird, because it's, like, your innermost secrets and um, most traumatizing Uh, embarrassing moments turned into a book for strangers to judge. So I've just been so amazed and um, honored by the response, which has been tremendously kind, and, and it's... I don't know how it happened, but seems like people across the board have found things that they can relate to in this book, and I... And I just feel so grateful to get to do this work, and I feel really grateful that my publisher let me write this weird book, which is full of butts and periods and gross things that, that if you read the Amazon reviews, are very vulgar and people did not want to know about, <laughs> apparently. Um, but but Hachette, uh, my publisher, not only let me write it and put it out into the world, they let me present it you know, just as a piece of literature, which is the way that the minutiae of men's lives gets presented as literature, and I, I think that um, it really means a lot to me that I get to bring this to you not as a niche publication, but a, but as a as a book. Um, it's a piece of literature, and it's not a. I mean, it it it's about. Women's lives, because uh, it's about my life, specifically. Um, <laughs> F.Y.I. Uh, in case <laughs> you just wandered in, and, um, and and I think that's really tremendously important. I think it's I, I wrote it about myself a- and hopefully to connect with other women and make people make other women feel less alone, but also as an entertaining piece of you know media for. Media is such a horrible, jargony... Never mind. It's, a, it's a, some content that I created. Um, no. Uh, you know, I think it's a funny book. It's a funny story. And, it's, and, and, I, and I hope that that all people can read it and, and find something to hang on to because I really think that... I have spent a lot of my life learning about the day-to-day lived experiences of men through literature. And it's been great. But I I would love to um, start having that be a little bit more reciprocal in terms of what we think of as as literature and and what we incorporate into the canon and because that's where empathy comes from and um, you know uh, I I really one of my express goals and this is in the book proposal from a million years ago is to create a really compelling um, funny. Engaging humanized portrait of one funny feminist fat woman because a lot of people don't think that they like loud funny feminist fat women <laughs> they don't like it at all um, and, and but of course that's silly because I am great and you should like me so <laughs> you guys. You shouldn't let me manipulate you like that. That was... I'm embarrassed by that. Okay. So I'm going to actually just read you the first chapter, which I wrote uh, kind of later on in the process and and didn't really realize until I started doing this tour and started doing interviews about the book that it's kind of the mission of the book. Um, This is about growing up and not seeing myself represented in media and not having characters on TV and in the movies that I felt I could relate to and that reflected myself back to me. And so it's about that and how that affected my life and a list of what was available to me, which is slim and not great. And uh, and so it not only critiques that idea, but I hope that the book itself is that, you know, becomes that thing that was missing for me. I, I hope to Uh, be something that younger women can look to as uh, you know I don't want to say as a role model but you know at least like I exist and I'm a human being and I and here I am (laughs) you know I I wish that I I just wrote something that that I could have used 15 or 20 years ago so are you guys ready? okay Ah, so weird to read your book out loud in front of 1200 people I love you guys though so much Okay. Okay. Why is what do you want to be when you grow up the go to small talk we make with children? Hello, child. As I have run out of compliments to pay you on your doodling, can you tell me what sort of niche you plan to carve out for yourself in the howling existential morass of uncertainty known as the future? <laughs> also, has anyone given you a heads up that everyone you love will die someday? That's like waking a dog up with an air horn and telling it that it's president now. I don't know, Uncle Jeff. I'm still kind of working on figuring out how to handle these weird popsicles with the two sticks. It's a horrible popsicle design, by the way. Do they still make those where you have to break the popsicle in half? Abolish it. That actually, I've changed the main message of the book. That's now my main message. There was a time when I was very small that I had a ready response to the question. The answer was ballerina, or for a minute, veterinarian, as I had been erroneously led to believe that veterinarian was the grown-up term for professional animal petter. (laughs) I would later learn, crestfallen and appalled, that it's more a term for touching poo all the time, featuring intermittent cat murder. (laughs) So the plan was abandoned. The fact that any kid wants to be a veterinarian is bananas, by the way. Whoever does veterinary medicine's PR among preschool-aged children should be working in the fucking White House. (laughs) That period, when I was wholly myself, effortlessly certain, my identity still undistorted by the magnetic fields of culture, was so long ago that it's beyond readily accessible memory. I do not recall being that person. For as long as I can recall, anytime I met a new adult who would inevitably get nervous because what is a child and how do you talk to it, and fumble for that same hacky stock question, my imagination would come up empty. Doctor? Too gross. Fireman? Too hard. Princess? Those are fictional, right? Astronaut? LOL. <laughs> While we're interrogating childhood cliches, Who decided that astronaut would be a great dream job for a kid? It's like 97% math, 1% breathing some Russian dude's farts, 1% dying, and 1% eating awesome powdered ice cream. If you're the very luckiest kind of astronaut ever, your big payoff is that you get to visit a barren airless wasteland for five minutes, do some more math, and then go home. Ice cream not even guaranteed. Anyway, loophole, I can already buy astronaut ice cream at the science center. No math or dying required. (laughs) Lindy won, astronauts, nada. Not that it mattered anyway. Astronaut was never on the table. Good luck convincing a fat kid that they should pursue a career in floating. (laughs) Thanks to a glut of cultural messaging, I knew very clearly what I was not. Small, thin, pretty, girlish, normal, weightless, Winona Ryder. But there was precious little media telling me what I was, what I could be. For me, what do you want to be when you grow up was subsumed by a far more pressing question What are you? As a kid, I never saw anyone remotely like myself on TV, or in the movies, or in video games, or at the children's theater, or in books, or anywhere at all in my field of vision. There simply were no young, funny, capable, strong, good, fat girls. A fat man can be Tony Soprano, he can be Dan from Roseanne, still my number one celeb crush... He can be John Candy, funny without being a human sight gag. But fat women were sexless mothers, pathetic punchlines, or gruesome villains. Don't believe me? It's cool. I wrote it down. Here is a complete list of fat female role models available in my youth. Lady Cluck. Lady Cluck was a loud, fat chicken woman who took care of Maid Marian in Disney's Robin Hood. Lady Cluck was so fat, in fact, that she was nearly the size of an adult male bear. <laughs> like, okay. You, I mean, you guys can ima- picture her next to Baloo, right? You know that a chicken is not the size of a bear. Okay. I'm just saying, there's some some zoological inaccuracies in that movie. <laughs> Um, Being a 400 pound chicken She wasn't afraid to throw down a f- <laughs> Sorry <laughs> This is going to take a year to get through this chapter If I keep <laughs> laughing at my own jokes Being a 400 pound chicken She wasn't a- And that's a conservative estimate I looked up bear weights <laughs> That's like if he's like the smallest kind of bear <laughs> Actually you know what I did Is I looked up what kind of bear it likely was in the Jungle Book, which is where Baloo came from. I know that Baloo... We get, we'll get to this in a minute. I know that Baloo is not Little John. It's fine. But he, he is. <laughs> anyway, it's a sloth bear, which weigh about 400 pounds. Okay. Being a 400-pound chicken, she wasn't afraid to throw down in a fight with a lion and a gay snake, even though the lion was her boss. Hashtag lean in. And she, and she had monstro jugs, but in a maternal sexless way, which is a total ripoff. Like, she doesn't even get to have a plus-sized fuck- I can't say it. I can't say it. Okay, this sentence that I wrote in a book says, like, she doesn't even get to have a plus-sized fuckfest with Baloo. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Okay. Um, And then it says Then there's a footnote that says I know that this bear's name is technically Little John But Little John is clearly a character being played By a bear actor named Baloo Who also played himself In the Jungle Book And decades later Yet seemingly unaged In Tailspin Okay Next Okay right. pipe down Baloo, (laughs) Baloo again, more Baloo Baloo dressed as a sexy fortune teller Okay In order to assist Robin Hood in ripping off Prince John's bejeweled decadence caravan Baloo adorns himself with Scarves and rags and golden bangles And whirls around like an impish Scirocco, utterly beguiling PJ's Guard rhinos and incapacitating Them with boners Baloo dressed as a sexy fortune teller This is also, do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's fine Baloo, Baloo, dressed as a sexy fortune teller, luxuriates in every curve of his huge, sensuous, bare butt. Self consciousness is not in his vocabulary. He knows he looks good. The most depressing thing I realized while making this list is that Baloo, dressed as a sexy fortune teller, is the single most positive role model of my youth. The Queen of Hearts. I do not even know this bitch's deal. Her only personality trait is likes the color red. She doesn't seem to do any governing aside from executing minors from losing at croquet. And she is married to a one-foot-tall baby with a mustache. She is, now that I think about it, the perfect feminazi caricature. Fat, loud, irrational, violent, overbearing, constantly hitting a hedgehog with a flamingo. Okay, that that sexual tree from The Last Unicorn. This is a generational thing that some people don't know what this is, but just go with it, okay? This fine lady was just minding her biz being a big purple tree when Schmendrick the garbage sorcerer came along and accidentally witchy-pooed her into a libidinous granny. Then he's all mad when she nearly smothers him between her massive oaken cans. Hey, man, if you didn't want to get motorboated to death by a fat tree, you should have picked something thinner and hotter to transform into your girlfriend, like a spaghetti noodle or clarinet. <laughs> the sex tree that launched a thousand confusing fetishes taught me that, that fat women's sexuality isn't just ludicrous, it's also suffocating, disgusting, and squelchy. Okay. Okay. You guys are going to get so mad at me for this next one, but we're just going to power through and then move on with our lives. Miss Piggy. Okay. (laughs) I am deeply torn on Piggy. For a lot of fat women, Piggy is it. She is powerful and uncompromising, assertive in her sexuality, and wholly self-possessed with an ostentatious glamour usually denied anyone over a size four. Her being a literal pig affords fat fans the opportunity to reclaim that barb with defiant irony. She invented glorifying obesity. (sighs) Okay, but also you guys. Miss Piggy is kind of a rapist? Like maybe if you love Kermie so much, you should respect his bodily autonomy. The dude is physically running away from you. It makes me really uncomfortable. I'm that is just really honest from the heart and it was hard to write and I'm sorry. Every plotline is Kermie running and <laughs> It's fine. Don't worry. It's fine. You don't have to agree. You shouldn't chase someone physically to have sex with them. It's just, it's a bad sign. Okay. If you have to chase them. Okay. Um, and you know how Kermy runs too? It's like, like, he's like frantic. He's, he's terrified. Okay. Which is also not, was not a great thing to absorb as a child. Like, oh, this is how men will react to you. Okay, cool. Or frogs, but, you know. Okay. Um, Okay, Marla Hooch. A League of Their Own is a classic family comedy that minds the age-old question, what if women could do things? (laughs) You guys are so cute. Okay. Specifically, the women of A League of Their Own are doing baseball, and Marla Hooch is the most baseball-doingest woman of them all. She can hit homies and run bases and throw the ball far, all while maintaining a positive attitude and dodging jets of Tom Hanks's hot urine. <laughs> There's just a, like a scene where he pees for a long time. It's fine. Um, it's fine if you guys didn't watch *A League of Their Own* 400,000 times as a child. Um, the only problem is that she is not Max bangable like the other baseball women. She has a jukebox-like body and makes turtle face anytime she is addressed, which, if you think about it, makes her not that good at baseball after all fortunately at the end she meets a man who is also a jukebox turtle face and they get married in a condescending ass ceremony that's like "Aw, look the uglies thinks it's people <laughs> presumably they also like each other's personnel what does it matter quarantine the less attractive okay the thing about Marla Hooch is that the actress who plays her is just a totally nice-looking regular woman. I always think of this thing Rachel Dratch said in her memoir, quote, I am offered solely the parts that I like to refer to as the unfuckables. In reality, if you saw me walking down the street, you wouldn't point at me and recoil and throw up and hide behind a shrub, end quote. quote. Hollywood's beauty standards are so wacko that they trick you into thinking that anyone who isn't Gina Davis is literally a toilet. (laughs) The neighbor with the arm flab from The Adventures of Pete and Pete. (laughs) Big Pete and Little Pete spent an entire episode fixated on the jiggling of an elderly neighbor's arm fat. Next, I didn't wear a tank top for 20 years. (laughs) Hmm... Ursula the Sea Witch. The whole thing with Ariel's voice and Prince Ambien overdose is just an act of civil disobedience. What Ursula really wants is to bring down the regime of King Triton so she and her eel bros don't have to live in a dank hole tending their garden of misery slime for the rest of their lives. It's the same thing with the Lion King. Why should the hyenas have a shitty life? History is written by the victors, so forgive me if I don't trust some P90X Sea King smear campaign against the radical fatty in the next grotto. Okay. um, Let's just go all the way through Morla the aged one from the never ending story A depressed turtle who's so fat and dirty People literally get her confused with a mountain (laughs) Auntie Shrew I guess it's forgivable that one of the secondary antagonists Of the secret of Nim Is a shrieking shrew of a woman Who is also a literal shrew Named Auntie Shrew (laughs) Because the hero of the movie Is also a lady And she is strong and brave But like, seriously, Auntie Shrew, thanks for giving her a pinwheel of snaggle fangs to go with the cornucopia of misogynist stereotypes she calls a personality. (laughs) Mrs. Potts, question. How come, when they turn back into humans at the end of Beauty and the Beast, Chip is a four-year-old boy, but his mother, Mrs. Potts, is like 107? (laughs) Perhaps you're thinking, Lindy... You are remembering it wrong. That kindly white-haired, snowman-shaped Mrs. Doubtfire situation must be Chip's grandmother. Not so, champ. She's his mom. Look it up. She gave birth to him four years ago. Also, where is Chip's dad? Could you imagine being a 103-year-old single mom? As soon as you become a mother apparently, you are instantly interchangeable with the oldest woman in the world and or and or 16 ounces of boiling brown water with a hat on it. Take a sec and con- take a second contrast Mrs. Potts's literally spherical body with the cut diamond abs of King Triton, father of seven. The Trunchbull from Matil- Matilda. Okay, sure. Sure. The Trunchbull is a bitter, intractable, sadistic she monster who doesn't even feel a shred of fat solidarity with Bruce Bogtrotter. Seriously, Trunch? <laughs> but can you imagine being the Trunchbull and growing up with Miss Effing Honey? The world is not kind to big ugly women. Sometimes bitterness is the only defense. And that's it. Taken in aggregate, here is what I learned in my childhood about my personal and professional potential. I could not claim any sexual agency unless I forced myself upon a genteel frog... Or unless, as part of a jewel caper, I was trying to seduce a base horny fool such as a working class rhinoceros, and if I insisted on broadcasting my sexuality anyway, I would be exiled to a sea cave to live eternally in a dank garden of worms, hoping that a gullible hot chick might come along once in a while so I could grift her out of her sexy voice, even though my voice was already better. Even in those rare scenarios, my sexuality would still be a joke, an oddity, or a menace. I could potentially find chaste comical romance, provided I located a chubby simpleton who looked suspiciously like myself without a hair bow, and the rest of humanity would breathe a secret sigh of relief that the two of us were removing ourselves from the broader gene pool. Or I could succumb to the lifetime of grinding pain and resentment and transform into a hideous beast who makes herself feel better by locking helpless children in the knife closet. Mother or monster? Okay, little girl, choose. That's that chapter. Thank you. You guys are nice. feel like I could just read to you forever, um, but I can't. That would be weird. Um, but that's the first chapter of the book, and um, then the book continues, and you should read it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think now we're just let's just do some questions. Right? Are, does everyone feel cool about that? I think we're going to have microphones if you guys want to line up um, if you have a question. Right? Is someone, does someone who knows the answer going to say... <laughs> I see we have a microphone here and a microphone there. So if you form two lines, that would be cool. And don't be shy. It's fine. We can talk about whatever. I mean, don't, like, be a jerk. But Well,
3: now you're
4: setting the bar oh, kind hi. of high. <laughs> hi.
3: <laughs> so I had a question. You had a, some great examples from my childhood as well. Um, but I also read a lot of modern media. Uh, comic books, pretty much my jam. Um, do you have any examples you think of like, strong women that are doing it well these days that you enjoy?
2: Oh, man, I should have prepared an answer to that question knowing that it would be asked. Um, I mean, I was, I was really talking about children's media, and I don't consume a lot of children's media, but I, I believe that it is better now. Um, but, you know, I mean, we have fat we have women movie stars now. We have Melissa McCarthy, who I personally love a lot. Um, I have no problem with her. I don't know if people do. Do people have a problem with her? Anyone? No. She's great. Um, (laughs) Rebel Wilson sometimes I don't like because she does things like play sad fat character where all the jokes are that she's fat, which I don't like quite so much. Um, I don't know. Do you have suggestions for fat female characters that people should look out for? My Mad Fat Diary, that's amazing. Have you guys watched that? It's a web series. Is it a web series or is it on TV in the UK? Web series. Oh, okay. BBC. It's on Hulu right now. Everyone should watch it. It's really, really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it feels like, you know, what I'm looking for is not just more fat people on TV. It's fat people presented as human beings. Um, and not just punchlines, and not just um, people with, like, tragic fat lady storylines, and so, you know, it definitely feels like you know, the the fight for representation across the board is just a constant struggle, I mean people, I don't know why people hate it's weird because (laughs) the people who are represented in media are always like, why are you complaining so much? It representation doesn't even matter. And it's like, okay, well if it doesn't matter then why don't you fucking let go of it a little bit and let some other people be in the media white guys. No offense. But so was that a good answer? Yes. I don't know why I'm asking I mean that's <laughs> I I don't I, I I'm sure that there are other... um, I mean, did I miss anyone? There's now that fat lady comic book. What's her name? Do you know? Faith? I haven't read it yet, but that's rad. Um, Yes,
5: Steven Universe. Universe,
2: Yeah, that's Um, a good one. Totally. And then also
5: the comic book Love and Rockets is also uh, a lot of...
2: I don't know about that, but it sounds...
5: It's rad.
2: Love and Rockets, everyone, if you want some fat lady... Is it women or is it
4: just, Women, all, all sizes.
2: That's cool. Yeah. All right. I'm, I mean, I, you know, it's like there's always a long way to go, but it's, it, it, it feels like progress is, like, lurching forward <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let's, we'll go back and forth. Yes. Hi.
5: Hi. <laughs> um, okay, so I have a coworker who doesn't believe that fat shaming is real. And... Uh, <laughs> Not, uh, yeah. So I was wondering how you would suggest that I would go about educating him in a way that's like not just going to completely shut him down and make him defensive.
2: I mean, it's weird because like, what do you like? I don't understand how people try to say that things that are real aren't real. Like, I don't know what. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, he just think he thinks that people aren't mean to fat people. Because like it's like a national pastime to be mean to fat people. I don't like. Has he has he experienced the media or like going outside? Yeah, yeah, no. Oh, he should do one of those things like when Tyra Banks wore that fat suit and went, <laughs> and, went and walked around, and then she came back to the studio, and then all the actual fat ladies comforted Tyra because she had such a sad hard time being fat. <laughs> greatest moment of television ever. Um, no, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard when people just have a block and they're not interested. That sounds to me like he's not interested in hearing it, you know? Um, and what do you do? I mean, oh, I know. He should read my book. <laughs> no, I mean, but he's not going to do that either. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys feel like I keep throwing it back at you guys? I mean, how do you communicate with people who don't want to be communicated with? um it's just a long slow process i guess uh, and it it probably helps and i'm not good at this but it probably helps to not be confrontational and to be like kind and patient and understanding if this is someone that it's important to you to get through to and otherwise you know if this is someone that is your friend and who likes being around you and you really do want to get through to them G- the greatest leverage is the pleasure of your company. And if he doesn't feel like listening and doesn't want to hear you, uh, then you don't hang out with him anymore until he does, you know? Yeah, you. Was that helpful?
1: Yeah, thank you. All right.
2: <laughs> I'm, if anyone has a better idea, you can find this nice lady and... <laughs> It's, I mean, it's just hard, you know? I mean, th- that's why... I, I mean, I've been writing the same article over and over for, like, five years because people don't want to hear it. So, yeah, clearly, I don't have the answer. <laughs> but I'm trying. Yes, hi.
3: Hi. So, you mentioned in your book being a big fan of high fantasy. Um, I was recently at an event where a male fantasy author told his of his experience writing a book with a teenage female protagonist, and the first people he took it to, the first publishers, um, they told him that they would take the book if they changed the teenage girl to a boy, Um, because the the reason given was that girls will read about boys, but boys won't read about girls. So um, he didn't do this. He kept his female protagonist, which was nice, and I think it's it's a pretty big hit and everything. But my basic question is, do you think it's still true that in general... Women will read about men but men won't read about women.
2: I don't I mean is that true? I don't know cuz I mean my reaction to that is okay so he still put the book out and did no one read it? Did only girls read it? That just seems unlikely to me. Um although I certainly I certainly see that attitude online. I mean there are, there are plenty of vocal fans of of many genres of of art and media who <laughs> I mean there was just a, a I don't know if it was a study or just a sort of you know, non-scientific survey that happened recently where there was some video game that made it so you had to play a girl yeah. character and dudes were like, no, it's torture, that's garbage, <laughs> help me, nine one one So, uh, but I don't, I mean, I, I try to have faith in human beings that that's not, that's just a vocal minority and not the bulk of young men, you know. Um, but I mean, sure. I mean, like I said in my in my rambling intro, women's stories are niche and men's stories are universal. That's how we treat them. So, I mean, that doesn't surprise me that that response, uh, that he got that response. But I hope that people will just continue pushing back against that and, you know, not caving to it and publishing your book anyway. And if it's a good story and a good book, I mean, God, hopefully... And, like, raise your young baby sons to read books about girls uh, so it doesn't feel weird... You know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really discouraging, but hopefully it's on the way out. You know, Hope I don't so. know. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank
4: you. Oh, hi. Hi, Lindy. <laughs> um, uh, so first of all, I just want to take a minute to say thank you because I think that the work that you've been doing, not just with this book, but for years now, is really important to our culture, and um, I love you. Thank you. That's so yeah. nice. And um, this isn't substantive to the first chapter that you read, but it is, I think, to the narrative that you've been running for a while. Um, One of the things that I think is really hard about what you're doing is that by bringing up things that people don't even like to admit are true, for instance, um, you're the target of a lot of really mean, asshole-ish comments, personal attacks all the time. And um, I want to... It's kind of two things. First of all, what do you do to clean that shit off so you can keep being you? And what can the rest of us do to, like, help pick up this work and make it not so hard to be so vocal in public and to, to be moving the ball on this?
2: I Thank you, first of all. That's so sweet. Um, you know, it, it's... I'm starting to feel like maybe the... The bad parts of the internet are irredeemable, and we should abandon them um, so you know, I used to be like, "You know, like <laughs> talk back on Twitter, and now i 'm kind of like, "What if we burned twitter um, <laughs> but uh you know I mean personally, what I do is is spend time in a physical space with my family and friends, and i'm I'm really um really lucky to have amazing an amazing support system and amazing friends and and a wonderful husband and wonderful children and wonderful family and um and that's really helpful because when you are caught up in one of these internet garbage storms it can start to feel like that's the whole universe and and you can feel your head like floating away into space and um so i've really learned a lot over the last couple of years of what it means to to have people who help you stay grounded because it that feels very literal to me. Like, okay, it's there are people that I go to and I can spend time with who remind me that this is the real world and most people are good and uh, there are people all over the place doing incredible work and um, and I and I'm not the person that people who hate me on the internet say I am because <laughs> why would I why would I trust those people's opinion anyway? Um, and in terms of the rest of you, (laughs) you know, uh, I just think it's really important to keep doing your work and to keep, to not get, I've been lately thinking less about how to combat online harassment and hate and more about how to just keep myself on track and doing my own work and making things and connecting with people and, um, you know, building things that are positive and make the world better rather than this totally fruitless, endless fight against, you know, these people who have no interest in, in leaving me alone. You know, I'm not going to convince them to leave me alone. And, 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 and the problem is not a technology problem. It's a, misogy- it's a culture problem. It's, that, it's not that Twitter exists. It's that misogyny exists. So I, So, I mean, whatever you can do to fight those forces, you know, racism, misogyny, transphobia in your own life... Um, with the people around you, uh, and to and to just keep living your life, I think is, is hugely important. Um, and I had another thing I was going to say, which was, which was, oh yeah, like if you run a media company, <laughs> I don't. Maybe some of you here do. Uh, really into the trend of no comments, no comments sections on articles is a cool plan, because I don't. You know, I've had, like, some, you know, there are a handful of lovely people who say lovely things, but then I I don't know that it's a net gain when those are drowned out by thousands of um, just exploding toilets. So (laughs) no comment section rules. And also, I think it's cool, you know, if there are writers that you like, reach out to them and tell them that they're doing a good job and be nice to them. (laughs) Because sometimes all you hear is hate all day, every day, and it's exhausting and you know hate in retaliation for this work that you like pour yourself into every day you know because it's a job and it's hard and it's it's exhausting and um it's 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 really draining to do you know to write something really vulnerable and then which is already in it like inherently draining and then get nothing back but shit and poison so yeah you know those are There's not a great, I don't have like a great solution. If I had a great solution, I would sell it and make a billion (laughs) dollars. But, um, you know, the the solution is to fix the culture, which is a very, very long, slow process of communication and chipping away and, you know, uh, setting really firm boundaries and and defending them.
4: Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question based on uh, how old were you when you started writing, and
2: what kept you on that train, and how do you keep inspired with the media
4: storm and everybody's opinions, like, growing up? Um, How do you maintain the passion, I guess?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I started writing when I was really little. When I was little, I wrote all the time. I wrote stories and books, and I had a million ideas, and then I sort of... You know, you get kind of... As you get older people tell you things about yourself, <laughs> and, it, you know, that doesn't start to, that starts to feel like not a—like, somewhere along the way, I lost the, the, the certainty that I could do that as a job, um, and then I went to college, and I got an d- English degree, and I was like, I like reading books, but I don't know how to write books. <laughs> that is a thing for, like, people—cool people with ideas— And skills, and um, but then after I graduated, I just didn't have any other skills except for you know making being able to make sentences. So I sort of weirdly fell back into it, and what's kind of kind of fell back into it because I was just drawn by the culture of the stranger. Like I was like, those seem like really cool people that I want to hang out with. Maybe I could fake my way through this internship, (laughs) and then they would like me, and then they would be my friends, and then they would give me like a pity job. (laughs) Um, but it turned out that I was actually good at it, and i and and I just sort of kept moving up like just following the path as it opened up before me without any kind of a plan um, and then it was it was not until probably maybe five years ago that I really started thinking of myself as a writer and thinking of this with certainty as something that I was good at and um from there you know i I, I feel very privileged to have. Like I said earlier, a, a really great uh, foundation in my life, and people who are supportive and smart and cool and kind, and and so it's not hard. It, it's I, I feel kind of like a, I feel like slightly fraudulent when people are like, "How do you maintain your optimism?" Because it's easy because I am surrounded by such great people, and and it's also easy once you start to. Once I transition from writing about from just being a critic and writing about movies and theater and TV uh, to writing more political and personal things, then you start to hear from people. You just start to hear from, from your readers who say things like, you know, I needed this and, and this, this helped me. And that's the most gratifying thing. And, and at that point, it, it's hard to imagine stopping because if you stop, then you're, you know, the, there are people who need you. Um, even if it's just five people, ten people, that's worth it to me. So, yeah, it's it's. I don't know quite how to answer it because it feels easy to me to keep going.
0: Well,
4: thank you. And thank you. Keep going. <laughs> thank you. Hi. So I know that this year has been totally crazy, and you've already addressed like a little bit of the sort of like deluge of just garbage opinions that people send your way a lot, but. Is there an interaction or a moment that was your favorite that was totally positive from this, I don't know, year or so of time that really sticks out for you?
2: I mean, just the reaction to the book has been totally life-changing. I didn't know... I didn't know... I really, in a very genuine, honest way, didn't have a gauge of how, of how people would react to it and how people would feel about it. And I've, I've just heard from mul- so many people... Um, who have said that they, they never felt seen before, and that's just such a sweet, such an important thing to say. And and I mean, yeah, definitely. This moment's really scary because everyone's reading my book, and and it's scary. But um, but like I said, I mean, if if five people have that reaction, then I'm I'm so glad to have done it. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I guess right now is the coolest t- time <laughs> because the part okay. before right now was really hard and long. <laughs> and now I get to just, you know, travel around and meet people and, and people cry and are so cute and it's just like the best. <laughs> so, yeah, this is it right now. This, this exact moment is the best.
1: <laughs> Hi. Hi. I'm trying to write a play right now, and I'm wondering how you get the ball of ideas in your mind onto a piece of paper without sounding totally insane.
0: Uh,
2: I don't really feel like I am, know how to do that.
1: <laughs> uh, I
2: mean, if you want to know about my actual writing process, it's like, it's real weird. First, I sit perfectly still for like 12 to 15 hours and can't do anything and fail. And I'm like, this is never going to exist. I, and I've been, I've been doing, for the entirety of my writing career, this has been my process. I'm just, every single time, I'm convinced that this piece of writing will never exist. And I, this is the time, this is the one where I failed, and now I'm fired forever. Um, and then there's, like, sometimes a small amount of crying. And then, and then I get my husband to come over by me, <laughs> and I say, okay... Here's what I'm writing about. This is what it's supposed to be about. Read this article. And then I make him, I force him to do all of the research on the topic. And then, uh, and then I just yell, I just yell sentences at him. And some of the sentences are good. And then I write them down. It's horrible process. Um, and then, uh, and then you, usually I get enough good stuff that then I can sort of turn it into an outline and then fill in the blanks. Or uh, I also... But the other weird thing that I do is... Um, I mean, you know, if you just push through that wall and just start writing things down, you can always edit them later. That's the thing. Uh, so I, I also do a weird thing where most most of the things that I write are, like, from start to finish. Like, I, I just start with the first word and go through the end like, in, rather than, like, writing individual paragraphs and, like, doing drafts and figuring out where things fit, I just do this sort of, like, barfing of things. If I don't do the husband thing, I just do this, like, I don't know. So, I, which feels like, okay, this is weird, but I I described it the other day, the, the feeling of, I guess, what you would call, um, uh, creativity. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's like a magic eye poster where it's like after i do the 10 hours of agony and and nothingness then it's like you sort of go into this trance and then i'm like Bleh, and then it comes out that's not helpful <sighs> you know i would just say the most important things that i've that i've learned in my career are to to stay really true to my voice and um uh, because that's what makes me a, a valuable commodity. Like That's what makes me some a person that people want to listen to because I'm not other people. I'm me. And you have to just take chances and be vulnerable and, and write stuff that you're not sure about. I mean, there are still sentences in this book where I look at them and I'm like, ah, is that a good set? Is that the best sentence I've ever written? Or the worst sentence anyone's ever written? And I'm not <laughs> sure. But you kind of just have to just, you know, take some leaps of faith and Just, you know, when it's just you and the page, just write down whatever, and then later go through and cut the stuff you hate and add better stuff. (laughs) Was that the worst answer? I'm so sorry.
1: It's good to know someone else feels how I do. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of this...
2: I think that the way that writing is presented, you know, the mythology of being a writer is very lovely and involves, like mason jars of flowers you picked from the garden. And the reality is, like, me in my underwear at 5 a.m. eating Swedish fish and crying. <laughs> so, like, don't be sad. Don't be scared if that's, that's your process, because it's, as far as I know, totally normal.
1: <laughs> Hi. Hi, it's Kaylee from Town Hall. Um, I just have a quick announcement. We should have time for everybody that's currently standing in line
5: before we move to book signing. Thanks. All right.
2: This is so fun, you guys.
5: Okay. Hi. Hi. I'm a huge fan. I have been forever. You're my literal hero. Ugh, um, nice. <laughs> I just. <laughs> so the other day, I was in a preschool classroom and they were listening to the three Billy Goats gruff on the audiobook. You know, And uh, the teacher paused at a certain point because I guess they called one of the billy goats fat, or maybe it was the troll, I don't know. Huh. And I wasn't listening. Probably and, the troll. Um, <laughs> and she, she paused it and said, now, we it's okay to read fat if it's in a book, but it is not okay to ever say the word fat or call anyone fat. And I had just read your book, and I thought, huh. So I was I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about if you could solve this problem right now. And, <laughs> and t- talk a little bit about um, how do we remove that shame and... St- how do we normalize fatness and remove the shame and the stigma? I know you touched on it a little bit in your book, but...
2: Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Because on the one hand, that that seems kind of good. Like, teach little kids that that's not right. a thing that we use as a weapon. It's not an insult. Right. Right. But we never say it. Yeah, well... <sighs> It's just my my worry is that some of those kids are going to be fat, and right. then they learned in preschool that that's a horrible thing to be that you should never talk about. Right. So, uh, blah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like it's it's hard because that that's so such better messaging than than you often hear about. Like you know,
3: know,
2: you know, you hear about kids being like lined up and weighed in front of their peers, and then sent home with letters saying you're too fat, and like the, you know the. The idea that, or, you know, when, like, we just talked about, like, when I was a kid, it was totally normal to be, like, to just have fat be code for a a bad, mean, evil troll. (laughs) So, you know, it's a tough line. Um, But I think, I just think that there's room to teach kids that it's just a descriptor and that you can separate what your body looks like from um, your you know, it's important to teach kids to, like, move their bodies and run around and eat nutritious foods, and you can do that without without linking that to body size and body shape at all. Um, but I don't know how to get that into preschool curriculum. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I mean, it's... it's uh, it, it, I, I mean, as you know if you've read the book, I, I really think that it's just a descriptor, and yeah. I, I don't think that it has... Um, i don 't think that it has aesthetic connotations, and I certainly don 't think it should have m- the moral connotations that it does, so at least preschool teachers are getting to that point <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah no, i don 't have a solution I guess oh. that that 's unsatisfying. <laughs> what do you think
5: uh, <laughs> I thought that I would solve it by just asking you about
2: it yeah, no, I know <laughs>
5: i mean i think you're, I think your
2: instinct is right i think um, I think not talking about it just makes it bigger and scarier and and What I think would be really helpful for little kids would be to just teach them that that everyone's body is their body, and it's okay to have a body, and all bodies are different.
1: (laughs) Hi. Hi. So I am a writer as much as I'm sure many people in this room are a writer, and I'm currently working on a memoir, uh, mostly about my family, and it's been really hard for me. I'm in a writing group, and we read each other's stuff. It's getting really personal, and I'm wondering, I read your book, it's super personal, Um, you go into a lot of detail about a lot of stuff, and I'm wondering if there was... A line you had to draw, or anything that was totally off limits for like public consumption.
2: Oh sure, yeah. I mean, there. Are, I think people think of me as like an oversharer, and it's like you guys. Like I, I keep a lot. <laughs> I don't mean that I have like horrible secrets, but but there's. I mean, there's a million lines, and I there there's a lot of myself that I that I keep private because you have to. You just have to. You have to hang on to a part of yourself, and you can't just completely give yourself over to, for public consumption, because it's, it's exhausting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I obviously, like, it would defeat the purpose for me to list the things that I don't write about, but there's plenty I don't (laughs) write about. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just think, I guess I could say that I, I feel like there is there's a writing economy right now that really encourages especially young women to sell their deepest traumas for $50, and I would encourage people to not do that, um, you know, unless you really want, you know, feel comfortable, but I, I, I just think that... Hmm, I shouldn't have said that. I don't know. Um, I... I I think, like I already said, I don't know, I don't know if I have any great wisdom here, but it is really important to, to me at least, to keep a part of myself just for me and the people around me, because it it is really, it's really scary to write something really personal and send it out. I mean, even this is like, this is the farthest boundary that I will, that I can imagine going to. Um, You know, I don't, I don't write about my relationship usually. I don't, I don't, there's just things that are mine, Um, and if, if I give those away, then it's, it gets, it gets scary. So I don't know. I, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say and what I, what I meant with the whole $50 thing is if you, if something feels off to you and it, and it's setting alarm bells off for you, don't, you don't have to push through that. Like you can listen to those instincts and Uh, you don't have to give everything away to be a good writer or to be even to be a good confessional writer or a good personal essay writer like writing is a craft and you're choosing exactly what you want to say and what you don't want to say so uh, follow your instincts thank you yeah
6: (laughs) hi hey lindy how's it going good how are you I'm really nervous why Um, Yeah. we're just hanging out (laughs) I know um, okay, so I have a question, but um, before I, I answer, ask my question, I want to get a to see a show of hands of how many guys are here tonight. <laughs>
2: That's a lot.
6: Is, job, is that a lot? <laughs> right, I mean, compared to the number of, of, of ladies here tonight, women here tonight, right? Like, I mean, okay, so my question, if you'll permit me, it's a little bit, so it's a question for you to comment on, and then also like a question for the guys here tonight. Um, because um, one of the earlier question one of the earlier questions was sort of like by by a woman asking how does she change the mind of some guy who doesn't want to think you know doesn't want to acknowledge fat shaming, and one of the things I see is like you know like white men who don't want to acknowledge you know that uh, that we live in a patriarchal society or like that that racial inequality or systematic um, racism still exists right, and but the thing is is what I've noticed is that these guys are a lot more apt to listen to other white men with the same privileges that they have, right? And so I would I would ask like of the men here tonight, obviously like huge fans of Lindy who might <laughs> making the world a better, like what are like what are we actively doing to change the world and to make the world a better place? Um, which is what you're doing. Um, Thanks. So, I guess, and I feel like you carry this, a huge burden of, like, saying that thing that people don't necessarily want to hear, right? And it shouldn't be all your burden, right? And that um, that as, you know, as, like, people with privilege, like, it's our responsibility to, like, take some of that burden away and, like, just, I mean, use it, I mean... Yeah. You're, you're a wonderful beacon and, like, a guide. I'm like, okay, Lindy said this. I can go with that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little bit of a question for the guys out there. And I don't know yeah, I mean, I, about, it, you know.
2: just like it's my responsibility uh, to talk to other white people about uh, white privilege and, and racism, I think that yeah. men can do a tremendous amount of good communicating with other men. Um, if even just to, uh, you know, to... to Alert other men to the fact that like there's this this uh, veneer of of male authority that that people really respect even if they aren't aware that they're doing it and to even just point out that that's not a real thing <laughs> you know and that and that women are just as credible as men. Uh, that's a, that's a hugely helpful conversation that I think men can have with each other. And yeah, I'm tired. Like I said, I've written the same article four million times about a, a, all these different issues. And so, um, yeah, any kind of lifting you guys want to do, not to fall back into gendered um, gender roles, gendered stereotypes, but um, figurative lifting and fi- uh, literal lifting if you want to. My mom always needs furniture moved if you guys... But... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thank you for saying that, and it, it is really important for, for men to have these conversations among themselves, I think, uh, because when, I mean, that's the name of the book, right? Like, when women talk and when women complain, it's, it's coded as, as shrill and um, unreasonable, and, you know, we use women's tone to diminish women's credibility, and that's, of course, absurd. So, yeah, use your big, deep voice... <laughs> I will. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, no. They, and thank you so much. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Wendy.
4: Hi. Hi. Um, I'm a little shorter. Um, he, I guess he kind of touched on a little bit of my question, but I was I was curious. I guess like for maybe the women in the room or the men who don't have a platform like writing for the stranger or having an opportunity to publish a book or um, just being able to to have the ability to speak to this group like what is your hope for us to take away and then maybe do in the world to like do to to maybe make this better or, or address some of these issues uh
2: i mean it's 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 hard for me to, to talk about this without feeling really grandiose, like, oh, go out into the world and fix <laughs> oppression. But I, I really do... I mean, in my own personal experience, um, a huge number of the people who come at me in really aggressive, hateful ways, they seem to be people who, who really hate themselves and who are really insecure and really um, unhappy. And I think that if if we can start to chip away at some of these... Expectations that that make people unhappy, that force people into these boxes that chafe, or or that you know tell people horrible things about themselves every day of their lives. That can really make a huge difference. You know, if you can teach people to be kinder to themselves, I think that naturally they will be kinder to other people. Um, So I guess those are the. I mean, and that's just that sounds so like. Hallmark Cardi, but it's, tr- I mean, I really do want people to be kinder to themselves and kinder to the people around them. And um, I have no idea if that's <laughs> something that, you know, the 1,200 people in this room can change on a global scale, but we can at least start. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, and, I, <sighs> you know, it's, it's hard, it, it's, I, I'm really hesitant about all this stuff because I don't want to anyone to think that I'm of the opinion that me writing a, a, a grumpy tweet, like a sassy tweet about abortion is the same as someone who's risking their life to be an abortion care provider. You know what I mean? Like there's this spectrum where some people are really on the ground like doing shit. And, but if, you know, if, I, I, I also think that, The first step to changing people's actions is changing their minds, and so if we can all communicate with each other and, like I said, set boundaries and defend boundaries and support people who are are putting themselves at real physical risk um, to make the world better, you know, we can... There's a lot of us in here. I feel like we can, like, lurch forward a little bit, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't know. Just thank you all for... Even coming here is feels really encouraging and cool. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Do you have any ideas? <laughs> no, it's, it's All right, like I'll stop doing that, and throwing <laughs> it back at you guys, and being like, "You answer the question." Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
4: <laughs> Hi.
3: Hi, Lindy. I like your dress. I was just going to start off by saying the same thing to you. Oh my God, the dress is beautiful. Look at us go. <laughs> Um, My question, um, I'm the mom of two daughters, and I know you are as well. Um, It's related a little bit to the preschool question that came up earlier. Um, The language that I and the other parents I know have used around our children is um, all bodies are good, they come in all sizes, big, tall, short, fat. Um, That's a lot of the language we've used, Um, but my daughters are now eight and six, Um, They've known since kindergarten, despite our best efforts, that fat is bad. It's a pejorative they use when they're play fighting. I hear it around the playground. Um, And I also know the world they're coming into and how, as young women, they are going to be judged and perceived because of their bodies. And so um, I feel like I'm struggling as a parent for what's the more grown-up language to move into Because the all bodies are good is starting to sound really hollow. Yeah. Um, Do you have any advice? Yeah, I mean,
2: that does start to feel, you can tell that that feels meaningless to them once they're in like middle school. It's like, okay, fine, but like, you know, 20 horrible mean girls called me fat today. Um, Yeah, I mean, so I totally know exactly what you mean. I hear the same things from my daughter stepdaughters um you're like
3: the next
2: uh the next step yeah, you're like the, just yeah. the
3: next age group up. oh get ready it's
2: yeah. pretty cool um <laughs> middle school is, is great it's just um just a warm you know nest of <laughs> kindness and <laughs> empathy um I mean, so I don't know. It's hard because I don't feel like the way that we talk to our kids is like, you know, they will come home and be like, "Oh, this girl said I was fat today," and I'll be like, "Well, she sounds like a real bitch." (laughs) (laughs) Like, we tend to kind of talk to them like they're adults, which I I think is helpful in some ways. Like, I, you know, I, I, I try to model like I don't I don't say she sounds like a real bitch. I say like. Yeah, well, she sounds like a jerk who probably is having a hard time in you know what I mean? I I I a thing that I say all the time is like mean things that people say to you are really things that they're saying to themselves that they're thinking about themselves all the time. Um but I but I I, I try so I try to model for them um you know how I move through the world which is um using using words for what they mean and making sure that they see me grapple with people calling me fat all the time, and, like, uh, that just being an accurate descriptor, because that, if someone tries to say something accurate about you as an insult, it doesn't make sense. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, and I do this thing that my mom did when I was a kid that I hated, that where she would, if someone was mean to me at school, she would, every time she would say, well, you know, they probably have a hard life. And I would be like, mom, why can't you just take my side? (laughs) But now that I, that I hear these things that other girls say at school, it's like, yeah, man, that girl's having a hard time. And, and, and I, and I'm just really candid with them that we're all taught these, these expectations for ourselves and our bodies and, and that, you know, every girl at your school is swimming around in the same septic tank as you, <laughs> and I, and it's just really important to um, to remember who you are. And it's hard, though. You know, I don't know. I also don't know how much of that's getting through. Like, I I, I hope that in the long run they'll remember me and how how I. I mean, a hugely important thing for parents, for for moms especially, is to not say negative things about your own body in front of your kids. Uh, because, yeah, because that all gets absorbed. Um, and, and But yeah, you know, I just try to, I try to really... I try to talk to them candidly the way that I talk to my friends. Because I, I know that they're... I know they can process it. They're really smart, and they're really... Uh, even and I can feel them teetering in this moment where it's like which direction are they going to go and so I, I just want I really want to model that for them and, and let them know that uh, you know also, I mean I also say like because I think this like they're not fat <laughs> they're like string beans and I'm like do you see how this is a meaningless thing like this is just someone trying to hurt you with a thing that sh- that doesn't like it's like it's like them, it's people coming up to you and telling you that you're blonde when you clearly have brown hair. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a constant struggle, and I don't know. I just find that what makes me, what makes me feel okay is to, is to really hold that line and make sure I'm being being candid and honest and letting them know that it's so, okay, you know, it's okay. You don't have to be nice to kids that are mean to you. Like, you, you know, I don't want you to be a jerk, but you don't have to be friends with people who make you feel like shit. You don't have to be friends with people who diminish you. Um, cause that happens, I mean, with these girls at school all the time, like they're just like, girls just hurt each other for fun and boys. I mean, the boys are worse, <sighs> but I can't even get, deal with that. Um, middle school, man, it's terrifying. Um, but yeah, was that an answer? I feel like I should have yeah. ended stronger because that was our last question. Okay, hold on. Let me find some sort of wisdom nugget.
3: Uh, we could talk about raising good kids as part of the 1,200-person mission, right? Yeah. Bring it all back.
2: I mean, it's, a, it's... Well, actually, yeah. I mean, to bring it back to that, like, treat yourself well in front of your kids and be kind to yourself. And that teaches your kids how to treat each other, I think. Hopefully.
0: Thank you.
2: That's our that's our show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I I I can't thank you enough for coming out for this. I'm like just really barely holding it together and not um, just sobbing because this is so moving and beautiful, and all of you are so wonderful. And um, come say hi to me. We're gonna sign books in the lobby for probably like four hours, (laughs) and uh, it's gonna be fun. And I love you all so much. Thank you so much for coming.
0: That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW, 94.9 Seattle. Lindy West spoke at Town Hall Seattle on May 25th. Thank you again to anna Sophia Knauf for our recording. Tune in again soon.